0: Welcome to the History of England, episode 76, The Personal Rule of Henry III, part 2. So this week we come to bury Henry, not to praise him. In fact, there's really almost nothing to say about Henry in these last few years of his reign. Once the regime had realised that it had to re-admit the rebels to society, things moved along well enough, if possibly slightly uneasily. So after the fire and brimstone, the wreck and ruin of the last few years, 1267 to Henry's death in 1272 are marked by much more standard concerns of the medieval king. Religion, church building, crusade, a bit of ruling on the side when there was nothing else to do, that sort of thing. One of the reasons for the calm was the Statute of Marlborough, which Henry announced in 1267. He may not have been able to stomach the thought of anyone telling him what to do, But after eight years of trouble and strife, he did finally get the message about the good governance thing. So the great officers of state were once again back in evidence, and the Statute of Marlborough basically confirmed all the things that the provisions of Westminster had put in place. Interesting fact about the Statutes of Marlborough, which in all probability are something you probably thought there was nothing interesting to say about, is that it is the oldest piece of statute law not yet repealed in England though it has to be said that 26 of its 29 chapters have in fact been nixed. So, let's say, for example, that you are really grumpy about the fact that your neighbour, in a fit of pique, had smashed the lights of your car. Not saying that happens around your neighbourhood, but, you know, just as an example. Now, you might be moved to take justice into your own hands and take your revenge. Well, you can't. You have to go through the King's justice, and that's because the Statute of Marlborough says so. And when justice finally does come to your neighbour, it will be proportionate. That's also in the Statutes of Marlborough. Finally, you might want to cause your wrongdoer a bit of distress, and you might be tempted to take him out into the street and distress him. Well, the reason you can't do this in the street is because of the Statute of Marlborough. Then finally, there's a rule against asset stripping by tenant farmers, something a few M&A men ought to know something about. Henry was now in conciliatory mood and while he was conciliating, he conciliated with the Welsh in the form of Llewellyn. The Prince of Wales had enjoyed a very good war, thank you very much. He'd made hay from de Montfort's trouble at being caught on the wrong side of the river, and he'd captured a few castles along the way. He'd called himself Prince of Wales, and in effect this meant that all the Lords of Wales owed allegiance to him, not direct to the King of England, as had been formerly the case. Frankly, a number of these lords were less than pleased at the prospect, but hey, there is no silver lining without its cloud. So Henry travelled to Wales in 1267 and at the town of Montgomery essentially admitted that it was a fair cop and confirmed the title and also confirmed he could also keep those castles that he'd half-inched along the way. This is the high point of Llewellyn's career and there's no doubt he'd played a pretty good game. However, if I tell you that one of Llewellyn's historical subriquet is Llewellyn the Last, you'll probably gather that the fat lady hadn't started singing yet. So there we are in 1267, with Edward looking at a life of thumb twiddling until his father popped off, and at the moment there wasn't a sign of that. But then in March 1267, that most Christian of monarchs, Louis IX, decided that the time had come to go on crusade again, and he took the cross. Edward was pretty sure that he wanted to go too. Now initially mum and dad weren't keen, but with their 28-year-old son hanging around the house, complaining of being bored, they were talked round in early 1268. But the big problem was money. So in June 1268, a parliament was duly summoned to Northampton. There the papal legate Ottobono preached the crusade in the church, which had been built to look just like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem itself. Edward's old mates Clifford and Leyburne took the cross, so did William de Valence and Gilbert de Clare, and Eleanor of Castile took the cross as well. She was the daughter of the great crusading King Ferdinand, so no hope of her being left behind to look after the children. But despite all of this theatre, Parliament was unimpressed. In the wake of years of trouble, they weren't prepared to agree to a tax, and the potential for Henry to raise money by getting sheriffs to extract more from their patches was very limited since we now know where that approach leads, i.e. to rebellion, death, destruction and the removal of genitalia. And so starts the history of the relationship between monarch and parliament, an ongoing process of the king or queen begging, shouting, coercing and persuading and threatening them to open their purse strings. Edward started off with a bit of playing to the gallery with some anti-Jewish legislation. But popular though that would have been at the time, no cigar. Edward then managed to get Louis to give him a donation of 17,000 quid, but the clock was ticking. Louis had decided to be off by July 1269, and Edward could either be on the bus, or he wasn't going at all. Eventually, Henry and Edward managed to persuade Parliament to agree to a tax, and the whole event was on. Before Edward left, Henry finally achieved his big dream in Westminster Abbey. The new church had been started in 1245, and it had a way to go yet, with the nave only half built, but it was enough. And in a grand ceremony, Henry's hero, Edward the Confessor, was translated to his new shrine in the Abbey Church. Henry himself, Richard of Cornwall, Edward and Edmund carried the coffin round the church, followed by a feast, where the king's hospitality excited, and I quote, the admiration and wonder of all. While we're on the king's hobbies it might also be a good time to mention the royal menagerie, for which Henry was particularly well known. It's not that Henry was the first king to have a menagerie, Henry II was the first English king to do this, in fact, and Richard the Lionheart had apparently also collected a croc while on crusade. Security, it has to be said, was clearly not up to modern standards, since the croc escaped into the River Thames and was fortunately never seen again. But Henry took all this a bit further He built a special house in the Tower of London in 1237, and housed two leopards. He also owned two bears, the second being a polar bear sent to him from Norway in 1252. On occasion, apparently, the bears could be seen fishing in the Thames for their supper, which must have drawn something of a crowd. But the most famous of his animals was an elephant, given to him by Louis IX in 1254. People flocked to see the beast, which must have been absolutely astounding to them and you can also see it today through the drawings of Matthew Paris, which are on the website or indeed the Facebook site. Unsurprisingly, if a bit sadly, he didn't last for long, dying in 1258. So, in August 1269, just a month behind Louis, Edward set off after him on crusade. Time hasn't been good to Outremer while we've been away. I think the last time we were there was with Richard the Lionheart. When he shored up the structure left it at least with a fighting chance, with a viable coastal strip. And for a while, things were okay. After Saladin died, the Muslim world became helpfully fractious and divided. But at the time of Louis IX's First Crusade in 1249, Egypt was still the leading Muslim military power, and with the rise of the Mamluk Sultanate about to get even more powerful. The Mamluks, as you probably know, were soldier slaves that had come to form the heart of the Muslim armies, and in 1250, they met and utterly annihilated Louis' crusader army at the Battle of al Mansara, to the extent that Louis himself was captured and had to be ransomed. Now, one of the commanders in that battle was a chap called Bybas. And it was Bybas that then rose to preeminence and executed a series of battles and sieges, which meant that by 1271, Outremer was basically reduced to just Tripoli and Acre. So, given that the centre of Muslim power was Egypt, it meant that in his desire to capture Jerusalem, Louis decided that the obvious place to start was with Tunis. This is of course some way from Jerusalem, but there was method in the whole madness. Louis wouldn't be the first crusader to attack Egypt, but so far all attacks had crashed and burned, so the question was how to launch an effective invasion. Enter another player in this little drama, a chap called Charles of Anjou, Louis' younger brother. Charles had managed to do what Henry III couldn't, he had captured Sicily with the help of the Pope. Now the Sultan of Tunis threatened his position in Sicily, so he persuaded Louis that they should take Tunis and use Tunis as a base for attacking Egypt. Unfortunately the whole thing was a fiasco, not helped by the fact that Louis died almost as soon as he arrived. Edward, still strapped for cash, arrived rather late to the party, and when he did arrive, Someone had done the crusading equivalent of putting the beer in the punch, so the party was basically over. And so the English set out for the Holy Land alone. All of this unfortunately meant that Edward was faced with the prospect of a depressingly unproductive crusade. He simply didn't have the men for the job, and there was no manpower left in Outremer itself to help out. His armies were numbered in hundreds, against Muslim armies in tens of thousands. Just a few weeks before he arrived in the spring of 1271, Bybus had taken the massively powerful and iconic Crack De Chevalier Castle, and he was closing in now on Acre itself. What simple manpower couldn't achieve, Edward tried to achieve with diplomacy, which makes this a good time to introduce the Mongols. Let me take you back to 1206, when Temujin assumed the title of the Great Khan of all the Mongol nations and started a seemingly unstoppable expansion which carried on well beyond his death in 1227. In faraway England, details were very sketchy, but news and rumours did reach us. In 1238, fish dealers faced disaster when their Russian customers weren't able to sail because of the Mongol invasions. Henry III himself had received a Mongol embassy, so no one really knew if they were good news or bad. Some of them optimistically linked Genghis Khan with the legendary Prester John, the Eastern Christian potentate, who were supposed to appear and destroy Islam. Others were probably a good deal closer to the mark when they reckoned that these were the devil's horsemen, the forces of Tartarus unleashed by the Antichrist. The point about all of this is that the Mongols were the only power able to challenge the Mamluks, and they had a grudge to settle with Baybars as well, since they would met before in 1260 at the Battle of Ain Jalut. Ain Jalut is in respect one of the seminal dates in world history when for the first time the Mongols had been defeated and failed to immediately return and avenge the defeat. So now the Mongol Khan in Baghdad was looking for a way to continue the western progress of the Mongol juggernaut. Which meant that he was positively inclined when he opened his mail over breakfast in 1271 and saw the postmark of Acre from Edward. Well, of course, the letter was actually carried by a delegation but through this conversation they agreed a joint campaign, which is a bit of a hoot really given the size of the English contribution compared to the Mongol one. But nonetheless, the Mongol army duly arrived in October 1271. While Baibaz and his army headed north to Aleppo to meet the Mongol army, Edward and his knights joyfully sallied out from Acre and managed to steal a few goats on the way to Jerusalem before scuttling back inside the safety of the walls of Acre but to the Christian's despair, the Mongol Khan had troubles of his own. The army that had arrived was a rather underpowered 10,000 strong, and as baybars approached, with his main army, they legged it. Now, while it's true that Edward's original arrival had probably achieved at least a stiffening of Christian resolve, which may be contributed to another 20 years of survival for Acre, Actually, by April 1272, Edward had become something of an embarrassment for the locals. The problem was that traditional one of the local Christians, who had adapted to the ways of the East and reached an accommodation with the local Muslims, and the rather bombastic new foreigners, confused by shades of grey where they'd expected to find a black and white war zone. So when Acre agreed a 10-year truce with Baybars, Edward was not best pleased, and he refused to have anything to do with it. Now this was very inconvenient for Acre, after all they'd signed up to a truce and yet within their walls they had this big warlike looking chap itching to get out and start doing a bit of goat stealing. And probably bringing the entire might of Egypt down on their overexposed necks. It was a problem, really. So they were probably less delighted than you might think when a couple of high ranking Muslim commanders turned up in Acre and started talking about the possibilities of treachery and helping Edward. And similarly, they were probably less upset than you might think when on June the 17th, the two supposed traitors turned out to be assassins. One of the two managed to get a private interview with Edward and once alone, drew his dagger and went for it, stabbing Edward in the shoulder. Now, he'd probably picked the wrong king to assassinate and he suffered the consequences, death at Edward's hands. But there was panic in Edward's camp, since they had to assume that the blade was poisoned. Now we have this lovely romantic story that his wife Eleanor of Castile rushed into the room sucked the poison from the wound although another story has the sucking carried out by one of Edward's knights but either way if you were a betting man you were quite happy to put a few quid on the next king of England being called Edmund rather than Edward especially as the wound turned gangrenous and Edward prepared his will. Well as it happens Edward survived But it confirmed that this was the end for the crusade and in late September 1272 they set off. When they arrived at Sicily in January 1273, Charles of Anjou was there to tell them that his father had died. We are told that Edward wept and wrote of his bitter loss. And despite their differences at various times, you could imagine that the troubles they had been through would have built something of a father and son bond against the world mentality. Now, cast your mind back to the New Forest. The year is 1100 and William Rufus is lying dead with an arrow sticking out of him and his brother Henry is legging it down to Winchester as fast as horseflesh can carry him. Within three days he was crowned king. Now obviously he had a particular problem in that he was completing with Robert but nonetheless we know the drill. Get yourself crowned, anointed and blessed and if you don't you can probably forget all the rest but there was no such kerfuffle with Edward I. And that was the result of a bit of clear thinking and advanced planning by Henry and his son. Unusual for Henry, but hey, credit where credit's due. Snaps for Henry, all that sort of thing. So most of the royal castles had been transferred to men that Edward knew and trusted before he left on crusade. And rather than waiting for Edward to return, on the very next day after Henry died, Edward's peace was declared in Westminster Hall. And then at the Henry's funeral in Westminster Abbey, the assembled magnates swore allegiance to Edward. All of this meant that while Edward was surely going to head for home, he didn't have to do it in a tearing hurry. Henry, meanwhile, was sealed in his rather magnificent tomb in Westminster Abbey a few days after his death on the 16th of November 1272. He was 65 years old and had reigned for 56 years, really rather undistinguished years it has to be said. The last few years of his life had had its high points, such as the translation of the body of Edward the Confessor, but it had also had its low points, mainly to do with his family, Richard of Cornwall and his son Henry of Almaine, which have been our companions for some time and we probably need to finish off. It had in fact all started rather well. Henry of Almaine was finally betrothed at a rather grand old age of 35 in 1269. Then, in early 1271, he was sent into Italy to pursue the surviving de Montfort sons. It's not quite clear what his job was, vengeance or peace, but the balance of probabilities was that it was to find a way to reconcile Edward and the brothers. Simon de Montfort Jr. had fled England in February 1266 and brother Guy had joined him later in the spring. Ironically, they joined up with Charles of Anjou and were part of his successful campaign to capture Sicily. Guy in particular was doing rather well. He'd got himself a wife, a couple of daughters and a position in Tuscany, a second life as it were. But neither of the de Montfort boys had forgotten what had happened to their father. So when they heard that Henry of Almain was trying to find them, the man who deserted their father, their thoughts didn't turn to reconciliation or anything of the like. They met Henry of Almaine in a church in Tuscany in March 1271 and they attacked him. Henry cried out for mercy but Guy said, You had no mercy on my father and brothers, and Henry was murdered. I have taken my vengeance, said Guy, and then dragged the body out into the street and mutilated it in the same way as his father's had been at Evesham. The statutes of Marlborough would have been horrified. And indeed, Christendom was shocked by the murder. Dante, for example, condemned Guy to the seventh circle of hell, steeped to the neck in a river of boiling blood. Which doesn't sound like a great way to spend eternity and neither of the de Montforts were now ever to be really safe again, with the animosity of Edward pursuing them wherever they went. Simon died in a Sicilian castle that same year. Guy spent a few years in prison, but was then accepted back into Charles of Anjou's service, but eventually died by his own hand in prison in 1291, after being captured at sea by Charles's enemies. Death followed on death. Edward's second son John had been left in Richard of Cornwall's care, And a month after Henry of Almain's death, little John died too, and he was soon followed by Richard himself in August. All of which rather overshadowed the last year of Henry's life. At his funeral, Henry's body was carried on an open bier, dressed in robes of red Samite, decorated with gold embroidery and precious stones. It's rather difficult to disagree with the chronicler who wrote, he shone more gloriously in death than he did in life. Yep, that pretty much nails it for me. I don't know about how well I've managed to communicate a possible image of Henry III but for me he comes across as an irritating man but of course it's impossible to have a really human understanding without having met someone. But anyway he comes across as hung up on his own dignity stubborn when he should be flexible, weak when he should have stuck to his guns and capable of seeing beyond the needs and opportunities of his own family with a poor sense of justice. On the other hand he did have his moments of cunning he had an admirable lack of love for war and gave England an extended period of peace, and of course was pious and generous to the poor. You could hardly put him on the list of the worst five leaders England's ever had, but that's probably about the best I can say of him. Which brings us back to the leopard, who, in the best tradition of leopardness, took things pretty lazily, even given that they'd planned for this. He passed in a great procession all the way through Italy and then over to Paris, where in July 1273 he swore homage for his French lands, as required by the Treaty of Paris. Now this gave both him and the new French king, Philip III, something of an issue. The Treaty of Paris was an awfully vague kind of document, drawn up between two kings with the same outlook on life, and no desire whatsoever to deal with the kind of detail that causes arguments. The kind of detail like, what lands exactly were the English supposed to have? You know, little things. Details, darling, details. So, Edward put his hands into those of the French king, knelt before him and said, Lord King, I do homage to you for all the lands I ought to hold from you. Which is elegantly vague, I'm sure you'll agree. Then off Edward went to Gascony. Now, if you can remember the previous episodes about Henry and Gascony, you may remember a chap called Gaston de Bairne. Gascon without any love for rule by the English, or indeed probably rule by anybody. Anyway, he cut up rough, surprise, surprise, and it took until winter for Edward to bring him to heel, all of which meant it wasn't until August 1274 that Edward finally reached London. Behold, he shines like a new Richard, wrote the Londoners, and the king was home. Which I think means we ought to spend the few minutes left in the podcast to have a bit of a hack at how history has treated Edward and his reputation. So, let's turn first to our two ultimate authorities, Messrs Sellers and Yateman and 1066 and all that, and the Ladybird, Kings and Queens of England, Book 1. Sellers and Yateman actually are rather reserved about Edward, a strong king, they call him, fair enough, and then go on and talk about the Hammer of the Scots and his bench, which will become clear at some point. Ladybird, on the other hand, really go for it, so here we go. Edward I was next to Alfred, The greatest of our kings. Well, I'm not arguing about the Alfred thing, but we'll have to see about the rest. According to Ladybird, Edward strengthened Parliament. It talks in an approving way of hammering the Scots, the defeat of the Welsh, and also gives him credit for the growth of towns in their charters. There's a rather nice line about this helping de Montfort to recruit men for his Parliament, which points at the view of the time of de Montfort as the father of Parliament. So, OK, that's a pretty positive view. And that famous 19th century Whig historian Bishop William Stubbs was also full of praise. He called him the English Justinian for the changes he made to the law. He saw Edward as consciously developing the power of Parliament, a view that survived all the way to the 60s. As you might expect, later historians have normally discarded the rather naive view that Edward set out to strengthen Parliament. Edward, like any medieval king, would have been all too pleased to have had to have no truck with the community of the realm. Edward was a clever man who realised that he had to work with this new extended and newfangled Parliament idea. He was clever and strong enough to use Parliament in a way that made him stronger, but I'd like to bet that he'd have preferred to be Billy the Conk and not had to have worried about the thing at all. As much as any of England's monarchs, the way you think about Edward rather depends on your own attitudes. So, on the one hand, you might say that the conquest of Wales and the attempted conquest of Scotland were just part of the process of creating the Kingdom of Britain just the same process as Athelstan had been engaged with at Brunnenberg. Might is, after all, right. Or you might take the attitude that Edward had no need to stir this particular nest, and in Scotland at least simply ended up turning what had been a perfectly amicable relationship into centuries of continual warfare. Anyway, however you look at it, the balance of opinion then swung a long way from the days of the hero worship of Stubbs, In the early 20th century, the historian touts view was that Edward was a tyrant, who had no interest in Parliament except as a way to counterbalance the power of the magnates. In the 1950s, the historian sales saw Edward as arbitrary and untrustworthy, and again with no genuine commitment to Parliament. And Macfarlane stressed Edward's unreasonableness towards the senior nobility. It probably goes without saying that Welsh and Scottish historians have not been well disposed towards Malleus Scotorum, Henry I, Hammer of the Scots. Having said that, no historian I don't believe would argue that Edward achieved great things in the earlier parts of his reign, at the very least. The point that Michael Prestwich makes, as the most recent authority on Edward, is that you have to see Edward in his context. And as far as contemporaries were concerned, Edward was a great king in the proper medieval mould, even if he was more feared than loved. We have a number of different chroniclers of the time as well, which gives us a pretty balanced range of views. So while Walter of Giesborough gives a pretty balanced and reliable view, Peter Langtoft was virulently anti-Scottish. And on the other hand, we have Scottish chroniclers who don't hold back on the patriotic view. So on the 18th of August, Edward and Eleanor of Castile rode in procession from the Tower of London to the Palace of Westminster. He'd have enjoyed that. Edward was not a man who liked to hold a grudge for more than 20 years or so, but during that period he had every intention of giving London a hard time for throwing mud at Mum. Overnight, Edward would have spent a night of contemplation like the night's vigil, probably in the room his father commissioned and died in, the painted chamber, with pictures of his hero, Edward the Confessor. The following day, Edward was crowned. He was the first king to be crowned in Henry's new abbey church and it's likely that there was a large raised wooden dais so that everyone could see him. It was made high enough so that people could ride underneath it on horses, which probably does mean that a lot of magnates in the church were on horses or with horses, which makes a rather magnificent picture, doesn't it, with the clopping of horses' hooves and presumably other more plopping noises going on. We have a few other coronation traditions started in 1274, such as the tradition of making an offering at the altar of gold figurines of Edward the Confessor and St John the Evangelist. The coronation would have contained the four basic promises to protect the church, do good justice, suppress evil laws, and protect the rights of the crown. By this time, the whole ceremony is getting grander and grander, so Edward's investiture sounds as complicated as John Hurt putting his makeup on for Elephant Man. He was given a golden tunic, girded with a sword, robed with a mantle with more gold in it. Then he got a gold ring and golden spurs, then the special coronation gloves, golden rod and scepter, and only finally then the crown itself. Hopefully he was then given a small cart so he could pull all the stuff home with him, but I suspect not. One thing he did do which deviated from the norm was to immediately set aside the crown and announce that he would, and I quote, Never take it up again until he'd recovered the whole lands given away by his father to the earls, barons and knights of England, and to aliens. Now, given that this was addressed to a church stuffed full of earls, barons and knights of England, this is a pretty gutsy thing to say, and as good an indication as you could possibly have of the change in management style heading England's way. So, now that we have Edward crowned, I think it's time to take my leave. There will be no podcast next week. Work is the main culprit. So I've gone to a three-podcast-in-four-week policy. I hope that's okay for everyone. Thanks to David Nickel for changing that iTunes message. And thanks to all of you who have commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes or email. Keep them coming. Good luck and have a great fortnight.